By the end, I mean like Letterman does it. He starts at ten, top 10 and starts at, well, that's how we did the Ten Commandments. So today we're wrapping up that series. And so the end of the commandments is the first commandment. This is the big one. This is the one where God says there are no other gods before me. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But this is the law. And I asked myself as I was working on these notes, why, why law? You know, law, some, when you say law, sometimes people, we, we get our teeth on edge about the law. But I like laws. I, I mean, certain laws. Isn't that how we are? I like certain laws. I like the laws that says that there has to be enough structure in this building so the roof doesn't cave in when we get a strong wind. I like that law. I like the law that says you have to have concrete a certain way so it doesn't dissolve into sand under your feet. I like that law. Some of the other laws sometimes push me a little bit because I think I should be able to go faster. <laughs> Anybody want to go faster in certain places than you? Well, there are certain laws that tell you how things should work. Speed laws. I-25 going up there, 75 miles an hour. I love I-25. I'm just roaring up there, 75 or 76, just going right up there. And, and if you end up going 83 and a friendly trooper picks you, picks you up on his radar and pulls you over and says, you know, the sign says 75, not 83, that's a law you should obey for the safety of everybody. But if you go 83, your car doesn't blow up, okay? So it's not that kind of law. But there's a law called gravity that's not how things should work, it's how things do work. So like, if I come to the edge of the platform right here and I start to step off, you know, I start to go like this, how many of you think that I would go up? <laughs> not so much. You're going down because that's a law, that's how life works, that kind of law. And that's what the Ten Commandments are. They are that kind of law. Not how things should work, how things do work. Doris Kearns Goodwin is a presidential historian who uh, years ago, she was brought up as an Irish Catholic girl in Brooklyn, rooted for the Brooklyn Dodgers back before they were the L.A. Dodgers. And she said she used to go to Mass and pray that Mickey Mantle of the Yankees would break his leg. So she was, she's that kind of person. And she started writing books about presidents. And one of them was a book called Team of Rivals from which the film Lincoln was made last year. But I was in a place where she was speaking back in DC some years ago and she told this story about World War II. In World War II, so many of our men were drafted, millions of young men were drafted so that women were recruited to go into the factories to work on airplanes and tanks. And they had signs for Rosie the Riveter and um, they became so efficient during the war that the production level with women working in the factories was higher than when it was just men working in the factories. By the end of the Second World War in a B-24 Liberator bomber factory, they were rolling one bomber off the line every 69 minutes. There were 300,000 rivets in every plane. Well, at the end of the war, the owners of the factory said, I wonder why production was higher with the women than with just with guys. <clears throat> and they did studies. And the only thing they could determine that was different was that when a woman was asked to run a new piece of equipment, she, unlike a man, asked for directions. <laughs> so, 
<clears throat> this is the operation manual. The Ten Commandments are the operational manual of how life works. It's the first and most critical direction. And it says this in Exodus, the 20th chapter, the first through the third verses. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. <clears throat> That's the context. This is why you need to listen to me. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The statement is in that context. Here is a people who have just endured 450 years, almost 450 years of domination and slavery. And here's the God who's saying, I have led you out. When you read the prophets, which come later in the Old Testament, they all reference this point. I'm the God who led you out. You need to listen to my prophet because I'm the God who led you out. Now, just parenthetically, these, these Ten Commandments are ten ways on how not to be a slave. Ten ways on how not to be a slave. But the kicker here is I have to decide whether I believe the one who's telling me this. It isn't just that they're laws, it's that who says? Who's making the laws? Because the, what I decide about that makes all the difference. All of us know that the decisions we make determine our destiny. We all know that. For example, just as a, as a passing point, <clears throat> if I decide that I'm an accident, that I'm a fluke of nature, how I live my life is totally different than if I believe I have a designer. But if I believe that I am designed, that I'm unique, that I'm one of a kind, that I'm not just something that fell off a log or came out of a swamp, if I, if I believe I'm designed, then I have to try to discover what my designer's like. And, and that's what this is about. Who might that God be? Again, how did, how did Moses get to this place on this mountain with these people. Let me just give you a little snapshot of history. Some of you know the story of Abraham and Esau and Jacob, and Jacob had these sons, and these sons were quite a gang, and they had the young boy named Joseph. You can read this in Genesis 37 and following. It's a fascinating, very interesting story. It's high drama. Then Joseph was the young guy, and he wore fancy clothes. He was a dude, and he was cocky, and he had dreams. And the older brothers didn't like it, and the father loved him best, and that's not a good deal. Don't play favorites. And so what ended up was that they, they sold Joseph. They grabbed him, took his coat, dipped it in blood, took it back to the father, say he was eaten by animals, but they really sold him, and he was taken to Egypt. And through a series of circumstances, God blessed him, and he became ruler of Egypt when he was 30 years old. Then these guys had a famine in their land, and they came down to get help and they didn't recognize their brother. He helps them. They go back, long story short, all of these folks end up down in Egypt and they start multiplying. And they had all these descendants and over years they had thousands and hundreds of thousands and, and a new Pharaoh came into town and um, he didn't really know Joseph and he said, these are way too many of these, these people, let's make them slaves. And so for the next hundreds of years, <clears throat> excuse me, they were slaves. One of those slave babies was a little boy named Joseph. And the word had gone out, kill all the boy child, all the boy children. 
And his mom put him in a little reed boat and Pharaoh's daughter found him. You know that story. <clears throat> and he, like Joseph, became a big guy in Egypt. And then, then he got upset with somebody and he killed a guy and he had to run for his life. So he was 40 when that happened. And he ends up in the desert at this mountain some years before the law was given. And what happens is that he comes out one morning to herd sheep because he had gone from Big Magoo down here in Egypt and he ends up being a shepherd up here in the desert. And he comes out one morning and there's a bush that's on fire and it's not being burned up. But more interesting than that, it's a talking bush. And he goes over and the voice starts talking to him. And in Exodus, the third chapter, the 11th through 15th verses, this is how it reads. Now, this is years before the law was given. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I'll be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. So he, he goes down there. He makes a decision that even though he's wanted for murder in Egypt, he'll go down and lead these people out. That's a whole other story. He leads them out. And when he leads them out, they come to this mountain. He goes up on the mountain. He comes down with the law. And now it's decision time again. They have to decide whether they're going to believe this God. Point one on your, <clears throat> excuse me, point one on your outline is the God decision is the most important one you will ever make. The God decision is the most important one you will ever make. Let me just take a moment here and say yesterday we had a memorial service for our dear friend, Dwayne Patchett. Dwayne Patchett was director of men's ministries here. And if he were here this morning, he would tell you this. He was an outdoorsman. He was a guy who liked to hunt and catch fish. And along the way, he found out it was more exciting to fish for men than fish for salmon, although he still fished for salmon. But if he were here this morning, he would say, the decision that I made to follow God, to follow Jesus, was the best decision I ever made. His life, his impact, just in the last few years in this congregation with men here, has been profound. And we, we miss him. He's with the Lord. He's closer to him than we are this morning. But, but his mantra would be, when you decide to follow Jesus, best thing you ever did. No other gods before me suggest that there are other options. There are loads of other options. When, when they were talking to the Israelites, you could go with the thunder god or the yucca plant god or the river god or the sun god or the moon god. They had, all, they had gazillions of options. I was brought up in India. Everything was a god. I mean, just everything. We have our options. Pastor Jeff spoke to it a little bit last week. I mean, you can make anything a God. Whatever you take that's on the periphery and put it central, whether it's success or money or whatever, you, you know, any of those things can be God's. 
There's a, there's a fascinating book written by a Harvard psychiatrist named Armin Nikolai. I commend it to you. It's called The Question of God. And he does a standing Ramoni lecture every year at Harvard studying two men, Sigmund Freud, the father of psychoanalysis, and C.S. Lewis, who's the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe in the Narnia Chronicles. Both of these young men were atheists. C.S. Lewis decided to follow Jesus. Sigmund Freud didn't. And the book talks about that, and the lecture talks about that. The decision you make about God is key. The first time I was ever invited to speak <clears throat> on a university campus, it was the University of Illinois, back in the Vietnam War years. I was a young pastor, maybe 26 years old, 27. I was invited by InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and they said, just come and talk to a group of students in the, in the, in the lounge of the, of the dorm, and then you open it up for questions. So I gave a little talk about 10 minutes about Jesus who loves us and cares for us and all this, and open it up to questions. And this kid raised his hand, and I said, yes. He said, Mr. Foth. I said, yes. And, and he sent me to hell. And I said, no, 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 I don't want to do that. Next question, and this other guy said, how dare you walk in here and talk about a God who cares for us when we're blowing people up in Vietnam, when, when you have people in the barrio starving to death down in Rio de Janeiro, and, and babies are getting eaten by rats in the, in the, in the uh, inner city of Chicago. How dare you come in and talk about a God that cares for us? And I said, boy, I, you know, you're right. I mean, what kind of a God? Why would you want to follow a God like that? But that's not the God I read about here. That must come from some other place. That must be stuff that I could help, that, that I could deal with. I don't, I don't know that God's doing that, but maybe I'm letting that happen. But see, the, the, the challenge with deciding whose God is that my, ten, my tendency is to create the very best human being I can think of. And then I fall down and worship me. Would you like me to say that one more time? I'll leave that sit for a moment, as they say. But some people say, but it's so negative. Don't do this and don't do that. And point two, sometimes no is the loudest yes I will ever hear. Sometimes no is the loudest yes I will ever hear. I mean, some of us say, no other gods. Really? No other gods? Could I have a couple of backups, a couple of spares in case this one doesn't work? Or, or, or to put it another way, what, what is it about no that we don't understand? But you say that's so exclusive. In certain settings, no is life-giving. Ask any parent. It's what good parents do. The parent who doesn't say no to a child is setting him or her up for failure because the real world isn't like that. You just can't do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it to whomever you want to do it. Ruth and I had some friends who had six kids. He was a medical doctor when we were raising our little ones and we had these four under the age of seven and they had certain guidelines and, and all of us know we have rules in our families. I mean, we have rules. Now, we don't usually put them on the refrigerator, but we all know there were rules, because if you crossed them, you found out there were rules. 
And this is what our friends Paul and Jesse Yardy said about how you raise children. From birth to six or to seven, you put limits because kids can't sort of reason through stuff and say, Johnny, don't go on the street. Cars are bad for your health. You know, so you, you have limits. You're saving them by limits. From eight to 13, it's example. Kids are watching you like hawks, boy. Well, you did it. Why can't I do it? And from 14 and up, you negotiate. So <laughs> here's the God who comes along and says, I'll give you a few rules. You can count them on both hands. Maybe that's why we have 10 fingers instead of 27. I don't know. But, it, but just 10. Let me, let me give you 10 that will help you live this so practical. I mean, it's easier to say, here's 10 things you shouldn't do or can't do or mustn't do, as opposed to 63,289 things that you might be able to do. You can't do these 10 things if you want to be free. If you don't care if you're a slave, then it's not a problem. But if you want to be free, I'm trying to help you not be slaves, God is saying. These are people whose, whose dads were slaves and mothers and their grandpa and grandma and their great grandpa and grandma and their great great grandpa. They'd all been under the domination of the Egyptian pharaohs. And Yahweh says to them, you've been set free. You need to learn how to live free and stay free. Point three. Jesus comes to knock off lesser gods. Jesus comes to knock off lesser gods. You say, what is a lesser god? Well, a lesser god is a god that doesn't set you free. A lesser god is a god that I've made that ties me up, that makes me serve, makes me serve him because he holds me like this, as opposed to a god who says, I'm going to set you free so you can choose to serve me. You can read this in John. Here is Jesus who comes to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a leader in Israel. He's an intellectual, apparently. He has a THD and a PhD and a whatever other Ds you want, and he's got a good mind on him. And Jesus just says this little thing. Nicodemus, you must be born again. You need a whole new life. And he says, huh? He can't get his brain around that. What Jesus has done is to challenge his God, I think, and Jesus only says you must be born again to one person. He just says it to one guy. But he challenges his God. In the very next chapter, there's the woman at the well. Some of you know this chapter. She comes out at the middle of the day. She's probably a person who's not thought too highly of by the society folks in, in the town. And she comes out and Jesus says, could you get me a drink? And as they talk about water he says I've got living water that that I can give you and she says wow I need to tell he said well why don't you tell your husband and she says I don't have a husband and he says right you've had five husbands and the guy you're with now is not your husband and then this classic response sir <clears throat> I perceive you're a prophet I love that little exchange why didn't he say to her, you must be born again? Because intellect wasn't her God. Relationship was her God. She was going through guys like Kleenex, trying to find the right, if I, only I can find the right hunk, my white knight in shining armor, who will come and fix my whole world, then we'll be good. I think we're designed 
for intellect. God designed it. I think we're designed for relationship. But neither of those is big enough to be God. No other gods before me. Rich young ruler comes and says, what do I need to do in order to have eternal life? And Jesus says, obey the law. He said, I've done that. He said, then go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. He only said that to one rich guy, this guy. And it says that he went away disappointed. Why didn't he say to him, go tell your spouse? Because relationship wasn't his God. Hip pocket was his God. Here is the Jesus who comes to knock off lesser gods. He is the God who sets us free. And then essentially he says, let me tell you how the law works. Why don't we flip that over from no other God, so forth. And why don't I distill that down into two and just love your God, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's the other side of the coin. That's looking at it from the other side. He is the great I am, the most powerful, secure name in the universe. When he says, do not desire or steal your neighbor's stuff, your neighbor's spouse, your neighbor's reputation. Don't steal my day, the Sabbath. Don't steal my name. Above all, don't steal my place. Don't put something else in front of me. He's saying, if you do that, it'll be slavery all over again. And I set you free. Let's learn to live free. No other gods. Only the I am fits in that space. I am overwhelms I do. This is clearly not a Western God because he would be I do that I do. This is I am that I am. I am overwhelms I might. I am overwhelms I think this should work. I am overwhelms but it feels good now. I am overwhelms but this seems easier. This is the great I am talking. Everything else is insipid, puny, sham. Everything else is smoke and mirrors. This is the God who puts himself out there and says, I'm not going to make the demand of you. I'm going to make the demand of me. And there will be another mountain, not Sinai, where I will give my only son who will overwhelm the law and will fill it full and make it workable in my life because he'll put his spirit in me when I respond to this Jesus who has no other gods before him. I'd like to close with this story. I've told you this story before, but that has never prevented me from telling the story again. <laughs> Last weekend, I spoke in Chicago, and at the end of one of the services, a woman walked up to me, 60-ish, a little older, and she said, you don't know me, but I know you. She said, I was a student at the University of Illinois when you pastored there back in the 70s. I was a roommate to so-and-so who was a girlfriend of a Fiji. A Fiji was a fraternity brother from Phi Gamma Delta. And if there are any Fijis here, forgive me this morning. But uh, Fiji House at the University of Illinois back then was the raunchiest fraternity at the University of Illinois. Every spring they would sandbag their parking lot and hold an orgy called Fiji Island. And um, they were put on probation that spring but what happened was a few crusade guys, campus crusade guys, came through and talked to some of these guys about Jesus. And I get a telephone call from a young guy at Fiji House. And this woman who was speaking to me last week said, I remember you coming to my apartment with some of these Fiji guys and, and doing Bible studies with them. And she said, I wasn't quite there yet. 
But over time, I came. I made this decision to follow Jesus. And I just had to come tell you that. But I get this call from a young guy saying, those guys had to leave. Would you come and do Bible studies here at, at Fiji? And so I did. I went over and, we'd, and numbers of other Fiji guys and sorority sisters came to the Lord. And it was a, just a powerful time. It was all during the, the explosive kinds of times in those years. About eight months later, I get a call from an older, older guy. He said, I think you know my son. He's a Fiji, and he named him. I said, yes, I do. He said, his life has totally changed, Mr. Foth, radically changed. I said, yes, it has. He said, he says it's God. I said, yes, sir. He said, what do you say? I said, I say it's God. He said, I want to talk to you. And he had this edge in his voice, and I said, oh, man. And, and then he said, I want you to come to my house for dinner. Well, that changes the whole scenario because even if you're scared, you, I mean, you throw food in, you're there. And so I'm going over there, and you know, many of you know, that when I was young, I stuttered. And here I am, I'm 27-ish, 28-ish, and I'm still stuttering, and I'm driving to his house. And what I haven't told you about him was that he was a full professor of journalism at the University of Illinois. He had won the Pulitzer Prize for journalism in 1963. He was, a, he was a political cartoonist for the Boston Globe newspaper, and he was a Harvard fellow. That means he's real smart. And here I am, a little stuttering, pipsqueak preacher type guy, going over. It's like God said, why don't we take the, the stutterer and put him in the home of the Pulitzer Prize winning author and see how that goes. You know? And so that's... That's what happened, and we went over and we had dinner and we came out and sat down, and the man looks at me and says, this God who changed his life, I think I need to know his God. Tell me about him, Dick. And I start talking about he's the God who is. He's I am that I am. I am the God who creates. I am the God who provides. I am the God who sets you free. I am the God who heals. I am the God who goes before you. I am the God who overshadows you. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the beginning. I am, you know, that God. And after about 12 or 15 minutes, I stopped, and I knew I needed to ask him the question, but I was nervous as a cat, because mostly when people, in my experience, when they made commitments to Jesus, it was sort of in a setting like this, where you say, raise your hand, but this is like in a guy's front room, and finally I said, Fred, would you, would you like to know that God? And he didn't bat an eye, he looked at me and said, yes, I would. I said, you would. <laughs> he said, yes, I would, how do I do that, Dick? And I said, well, this God says you just have to ask. Just have to ask him to change your life. I said, would you like me to help you? He said, yeah, I would. I said, I'm going to say some phrases, and you just repeat out loud after me. And there's no formula for this except a sincere heart. And so I said, dear God, this is Fred. He said, dear God, this is Fred. And he had anger toward his son's generation because they had spit on everything he stood for, all of his values. And he said... I need your help with my rage and my anger and my hurt. And I said, I need you to change my life like you changed my boys. I need you to change my life like you changed my boys. I need you to forgive me of my past. Forgive me of my past. Come into my heart. Come into my heart. Make me a new guy. Make me a new guy. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. And I looked up and I looked at him and he wasn't looking at me. Tears were streaming down his face, and he was looking at his boy. And he got up, and he started toward his son. And when they got right in front of me, they just threw their arms around each other and held each other and wept. 
and I'm watching. And after a few moments, he pushed his boy away and he looked at me and said, Dick, do you understand what's happening here tonight? I said, I think I do, Fred, but why don't you tell me? And then the Pulitzer Prize-winning author came out. He said, I believe that 2,000 years ago, God gave his son to me. But tonight, my son gave me God. Then I got up to start bawling, you know. I put my arms around him. About 15 years ago, Fred went to be with Jesus. And this morning, his son is a counselor for Jesus in a large southeastern city. It's a long way from Fiji House at the University of Illinois to a southeastern city where you counsel people in the ways of Jesus. It's a long way from a Pulitzer Prize to heaven. But when you follow this Jesus, when you say, okay, my gods are gone, my made-up gods, my smoke and mirrors gods, I'm going to go with I am that I am. When that happens, all bets are off. When that happens, the process begins of helping me understand how to live free. Why in the world would I not want to follow a God who sets me free, gives me a purpose, gives me life, gives me forever friends? Why in the world wouldn't I want to do that? Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Just in the quiet of this moment, I just... uh, Ask this question, some of us who are Jesus followers, we believe in Jesus, but over time and because of pressures or I just, I, I glanced away, other things have crept in and, and my first love has sort of leaked out of the bucket, if you will. I haven't focused on this God above all gods like I should. And, and this morning, I'd just like to say to God, God, I, I want you really to be on the throne of my life in, in ways that I've sort of eased you off, but, but I want to be there. And you just slip up your hand and say, would you pray for me at the close here, Pastor Dick? Just, yes, I see your hand. Yes, yep, 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 lots of us. Yes, I see that. I see it. It's easy for other things to encroach. Yes, I see your hand. You can put it down. There may be some here this morning, as there were last evening, who would say, I have never decided, I've never made that decision that I want to follow God. I've made lots of decisions, but I've never made that one. And if what you're telling me is true, Pastor Dick, if it's true that he will change my life, that he'll give me a a whole new way of seeing life, that he'll take away my history and give me a fresh start, I want to make that choice. And you just slip your hand up and say, would you pray for me this morning as we begin? You want to start that journey with him. Yes, I see your hand. Others, you just slip your hand up. Just take a moment. Just put it up way high and put it right back down. I see it. Yes, you can put that down. Others, you'll just slip your hand up and say, yes, yes, I see you in the back. Yes. Father, thank you for this day. What a magnificent, crisp, cold day. This clear day where it seems like at this moment I can see forever because I see what it is that you want and that what you have done and are prepared to do in my life. For these dear friends who say, you know, I followed Jesus for some years, but sometimes it fades on the edges. Sometimes I just, I take my eyes away. I pray for a renewed baptism of clear seeing for these dear friends. Thank you for their 
warm hearts toward you. And for these who have said, I don't know that God, but I want to make that decision today. I want to say I'm throwing my life fully in with him. I pray that even, even as I'm praying, that in their hearts they will say, Jesus, come into my life. Change me. Make me a new person from the inside out. Forgive me of sin and make me whole. I choose to follow you this day. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Worshiping God comes in a lot of different ways. And one of the ways we get to worship him is with our goods, if you will, with our resources. He gives me health and strength so I can work. And then he says, why don't you just honor me with the first fruits? So our ushers are coming to receive our morning tithes and offerings. If you're a guest here this morning, please, please don't put anything in there except maybe the little white card that indicates that you're new and just visiting. But uh, Lord, bless this offering, bless this worship time, even as we give. Feel free to worship and stand after the plate passes. Say that again. What a great day this is. Just a quick reminder, Christmas festival upstairs to help with chicken coops and all that. And adopt a family to make a great Christmas for some little kid somewhere who might get a, a snapshot of Jesus because of these people who came by. If you raised your hand this morning and said, I've never made a decision like this before. I want to throw all in with Jesus, but I, I'm a little scared. I don't know what that means. I don't know where to start. This is a little packet that helps you know where to start. These are located on either side of the platform and out at guest services. Please come and pick one of these up on your way out. And if you have questions, you can call the church office or come back or get involved in a lot of things to, to grow as you, as you are on your journey with the Lord. It's, um, it's a wonderful thing to have people who will pray for us. And our prayer team is coming even as I'm speaking. And they'll be here at the front if you have any particular needs. And you just want somebody to pray with you for a minute. These are tremendous people. And uh, you'll love it if you do that. I've done this a bunch of times. Come down and say, you know, I've just got this thing going. And so please feel free to do that. And now for the benediction. Here you are. You no other gods before me, people. You, I know who he is and I am following him because he followed me and came and found me in the silliest, saddest places and tagged me and said, you're it. And I believe he means it. When you leave this place this morning, know this, you are not an accident. Where you are this week is a place that God has you and he's there with you. He wants you to be light in this town and you are. We love you. We're grateful for you. Go in his grace. The service begins now. God bless you. Have a great week.